1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We thought all of them.
0: the dead won't bother it's the living you gotta worry about something if i couldn't keep them there with me whole I, at least i felt that i could keep uh, their skeletons well hello everyone welcome to the bad taste crime cast i'm janelle and i'm vicky we're here again with you for you bye you
1: yeah, For another uh, great episode, <laughs> yeah, we're back again from uh, our social distancing homes, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. which um,
1: isn't that too far apart. <laughs> no, which is I always I think about that because Janelle and I actually don't live. We live kind of down the street from each other, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, we don't see each other that often because of COVID and work and school and life we yes. were talking about off mic <laughs> so close yet so far <laughs> yeah yeah um so if this is your first time listening a special hello to you we've got a interesting show It's gonna be <laughs> pretty brutal it's always interesting like, guys i feel like when we when i start that way it's like okay you know this one is gonna be a uh, pretty rough we'll say a doozy. <laughs> yeah, this is a doozy episode. Mm. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. So our news today comes from queensland australia and i saw this article and was like okay janelle and i have to talk about this um <laughs> because okay. the queensland parliament recently passed a law that would jail priests for not reporting confessions of child sexual abuse Ooh. so what this means is that The church can no longer use the sanctity of confessions as an excuse for not reporting. But there are some people who are saying that this is setting a a dangerous precedent for religious leaders. And some religious leaders have already said that they would rather go to jail before following the new law. (laughs) It is worth noting that this law was passed during Queensland's Child Protection Week. But Hmm. I think as we have definitely voiced on the show. The accountability uh, for child sexual abuse within the church is something that is we that is becoming a bigger thing of recent years, especially when you're talking about um, Catholicism and the Pope coming out very adamantly against child sexual abuse within the church. So... I was curious what your thoughts on this would be, because confessions are always one of those things that's like, uh, you just don't break the confession code, right? Well, I mean,
0: it has been broken before, to be perfectly honest. But I feel like their fear really is because uh, priests give confession to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, since we all know that pedophilia is rampant, especially in the Catholic Church – Uh, that means that they would have to rat out their own priesthood. Um, And I feel like that is probably the bigger picture. I don't think that they would really have a qualm if it was everyday people. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) I, I think everybody knows my feelings and thoughts on organized religion. I think that it is not the same as if you were to go into your psychiatrist's office. There is no... Patient privilege when you go into a confessional, I don't think.
1: Right. Especially
0: if you're committing heinous acts.
1: (laughs) With patient privilege, even, um, when you're talking about like therapists or something, Mm -hmm. they even have a duty to report when you're talking about um, harm being caused to another person. And I don't see why that wouldn't be extended to uh, religious organizations as well.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they get they get off on a lot of things, you know. Yeah. and um, this shouldn't be one of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, kudos to you, Queensland, Australia is actually when it comes to some of these things that we feel we see as pretty obvious, Australia tends to be leading the charge with their lawmaking. Interestingly enough, eh, so for the most part, if you want to talk about indigenous rights, you might well. You would be deeply saddened. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like when it comes to something like this, I'm not surprised that Australia would pass. I mean, they're one of the – this is one of the things that I always like to point out is they're one of the few places I consider Scientology a cult, I, which still blows my mind. That on, that's, yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. So it's like – I don't know why some of – there's a lot of lessons I think that we could take from Australia as far as our lawmaking goes, and this is definitely a great example of one. But you know how the U.S. and religion kind of go hand-in-hand a little? It's a shame, but it is what it is.
0: (laughs) I'm more religious than you are. I am a Puritan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're going to move on to Netflix and Kill, which I have recently – um we'll say acquired access to HBO Max. <laughs> nice. So, following um our last episode where we talked about Class Action Park which thanks to mm-hmm. being incredibly busy, I have yet to watch but will soon. But Really? I watched it twice. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but girl, I, was, I barely uh... have time to watch like a 15 minute TV show, so
0: I had it on in the background, I was just gonna be like, I'll listen to it. But it drew my attention so much that I stopped working on my uh, piece for school, and (laughs) watched the rest of it. And then I had to show it to somebody else. I was like, hey, listen, we got to watch this.
1: (laughs) Nice. Maybe that'll be one of the things I watch after we record. (laughs) But we're not talking about that today. We talked about that last time. Today, we are talking about a documentary called The Scheme that is on HBO Max right now. So Mm -hmm. The Scheme tells the story of Christian Dawkins by Christian Dawkins, uh, who was involved in a two-year FBI undercover investigation into a plot to bribe assistant college basketball coaches to steer players towards Dawkins Management Company. If you remember a few years ago, this was a huge, huge scandal within the NCAA, In the end, coaches four coaches were arrested from four different universities, including USC, Arizona, Auburn, and Oklahoma State, and Dawkins himself, who is currently appealing his bribery conviction. Now, according to CNN, quote, in what's sure to be the most talked about sequence, Dawkins describes what he calls Oscar-worthy press conferences by head coaches, insisting they didn't interact with him. Condoleez then juxtaposes statements by Arizona's Sean Miller and LSU's Will Wade with wiretapped phone calls of the two men engaging chummy in chummy conversations with Dawkins, with Wade at one point joking about how much a player would be paid. Now, this whole scandal has kind of brought this question of um, whether players should be paid for... Their participation in the NCAA, whether they're able to benefit from sponsorship deals uh, as they would when they are professional players, Mm -hmm. and the culture around uh, recruitment for players within the NCAA. It's a really, the NCAA has some really stringent rules, I feel like, on student athletes benefiting from their skill. When they're playing for these college teams, although there doesn't really seem to be a limit on how much money the college teams can make off of these players, which is something I mm-hmm. find not great. I don't know. I feel like <sighs> the whole thing to me is like <laughs> college sports
0: annoys the shit out of me. <laughs> let me just let me put it that way. Let me preface with that. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's a it's a system, and it's a, mm-hmm. it is a scheme in and of itself. But if the college is profiting off of these people, then mm-hmm. they need to be compensated in some way. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be compensated necessarily in a, you know, a salary. It could be other ways like um, housing or something to that effect. But if the yeah. college is making an abhorrent amount of money off of a bunch of kids, it's just like unpaid internships. You know what I mean? They're doing so much labor for what? The experience,
1: (laughs) like, get over yourself. Right, right. For the possibility of going professional, maybe. I mean, that's the other thing too, is like, you gotta think even from the top D1 schools, you're not guaranteed a professional career after you're done playing in college. Now, the one thing I will say, especially with D1 schools, is a lot of the students that they have playing for their teams, well, I don't even want to say a lot of them, because I don't know what the situation is, but there is a Mm -hmm. chunk of them that receive things like full-ride scholarships, and I think you can argue that that is some form of compensation, but Mm -hmm. I do think that brings us to a larger conversation around the cost of college, (laughs) Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and for-profit institutions, which a lot of them are. You know, so it's like, it's it's a tricky conversation when you're looking at the whole picture. But I agree. I do think that they need to be compensated in some way, uh, especially if the college is getting sponsorship deals from huge companies. Like, I'm pretty sure Nike was caught up in the scandal as well. Yep. And some other, sports like, drinks, really like, large companies.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot involved. It's like cereal companies, sports drink companies, clothing companies. It's, like, unbelievable. Right.
1: So it's definitely um, worth a watch. I think that there's some question as to the bias of this documentary because Dawkins is the person telling the story and he is also one of the people convicted. So there are some opinions out there that involve like a lack of sympathy for him because he kind of knew exactly what he was doing. But at the same time, you know, I think it's it's an important conversation to have around these student athletes and their role in the college's profits uh, for their sport. So. I do think it's worth checking out. With that said, this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Um, I know there's definitely some violence and descriptions of like murder and rape, I think, in mine. Yeah, I have no idea what Janelle's got in store for me, so I'm just gonna assume it's the same. <laughs> yes, yes, it is much the same, yeah, um, so Janelle. Do you want to tell us what we're talking about today? Yeah.
0: So for this episode, I decided to look at some partners in crime so you could take that any which way you'd like. But um, for my episode, it's going to be a husband and wife team. But I kind of wanted to – yeah, those are always the best. I kind (laughs) of wanted to preface this because um, I was doing a lot of research – I feel like I say that every single episode, <laughs> but in my job and also in grad school, I am literally steeped in the library and through uh, research databases. So it's just in my brain forever and always. So I was doing um, some research about like a psychoanalysis um, in relation to something else, and I Ooh. was... Uh, coming across this book, and I thought it would be good to kind of preface this episode with this information, because it's very relevant to the two people that I'm covering. It is a book called Serial Sexual Homicide, Biological, Psychological, and Sociological Aspects.
1: Ooh. So, yeah. (laughs) That sounds really interesting. Yeah.
0: So they talk a little bit about um, what causes somebody to be a sexualized serial killer, So I'm going to read, like, two little paragraphs from the book uh, just to kind of give you a framework of what my case is going to entail.
1: Okay. So
0: this is a, a direct quote. What is special about the period from the 1960s to the present is not so much the type of sexual homicide, but the sheer number. Serial killing is still a rare phenomenon, just as suicide and murder in general are comparatively rare events. But when a rare occurrence increases tenfold or more during a particular time period, this increase is noteworthy and will have effects and social consequences that overshadow the still rather number of deaths resulting from this form of homicide. The FBI conducted a study which emphasized various background factors, such as sexual molestation by parents or caretakers, being forced a child to witness sexual behavior, deviant or otherwise, and parental brutality or neglect. The early signs of abnormal and violent behavior were also assessed. Men who became serial killers were likely to have engaged in delinquent activities and to have tortured animals as adolescents. They tended to have powerful sex drives and to have indulged in morbid sexual fantasies as adolescents, some of which could be understood in retrospect as rehearsals of future subjugation, rape, torture, and killing of women. The FBI did not focus on the peculiarities of personality manifestations by the serial killers they examined. So that kind of discusses what we talk about, like the the triad, the McDonald triad, I believe is what it's called, Um, but it goes a little bit deeper. Uh, into how a sexualized serial killer is developed so okay i today will be talking about gerald and charlene galago now they're kind of a little bit bigger of a case than i normally would cover but i found their kind of connection to each other very interesting so i kind of wanted to look at it a little bit deeper
1: Well, if it makes you feel any better, it's not a case that I am familiar with, I don't think. So, this is all new for me. (laughs) Excellent. Um, So, Gerald Gallagher
0: was born in 1946 in Stockton, California. His mother was allegedly a sex worker, and his father was a career criminal who was famous for being the first man to be gassed in Mississippi for shooting a cop. Oh. Okay. Yes. Yes. So his father, who was also named Gerald (laughs) Gallagher, didn't just pass down his name to old junior, but he also passed his proclivity for being a grifter, a sham master and a general, just criminal asshole all around. (laughs) Uh, Gerald Gallagher senior was arrested dozens of times for everything from robbery and writing bad checks to straight up murder. He actually killed a police officer in an, Escape attempt, and then when he was jailed, he killed another police officer while he was in custody. So, wow, this is why he was given the death penalty.
1: That's a lot, that's a little excessive. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) So, Gerald Jr. was a criminal straight out of the womb. He reportedly had a record by the time he was six years old. Oh my gosh! Now, he did some, yeah, he did some very typical kind of bullshit, like just stealing things, but he was also arrested for sex crimes before he was even a teenager.
1: Wow. That's (laughs) kind of fucked up. It's very
0: fucked up. Now, I mentioned the psychoanalysis information because I want to show you a reference for his behavior, starting with him being a child. So he was already going off the rails right away. At 12, he was placed on a sort of probation for sex crimes that were considered lewd and lascivious acts towards a six-year-old girl. Now, that's just a polite way of saying that he raped and assaulted a six-year-old girl when he was 12.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Of course, we know the trajectory of the treatment of sexual assault. So this is not all that surprising for that time period. So for him, just receiving some sort of probation is not unheard of. Now, he was sent to a boys' school in 1959. He did not pass. <laughs> he was a dropout. Gallagher was arrested 23 times before 1978 and was married seven times, which includes being married to the same woman twice.
1: What? Yeah. (laughs) That's like, that's a lot to do in a short time period.
0: (laughs) Exactly. He first got married when he was 16 years old to a 21-year-old woman. In 1964, they had a daughter named Krista and... After that, he began to molest his daughter when she turned six years old.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Now, this is kind of a key factor because this age six years old keeps coming up. He became sexualized when he was six. He molested another child who was six years old when he was a preteen, and he molested his six-year-old daughter. There's something about that age that's very, like, ingrained in his behavior. Yeah, Now, in contrast, Charlene Adele Williams was born in Sacramento, California. I wasn't really able to find a whole lot about her childhood. She was described as shy, but she was also like a very big drug addict and had a huge alcohol problem. She was married twice before meeting Gerald, and she would hang around bars and gambling halls a lot because she was an alcoholic.
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Now,
0: I did find a lot of court documents revolving around this case. So this next little bit is uh, an excerpt from a court document, and it was about their meeting. In 1977, when she was almost 21 and he was 31, and he had already been married five times, he worked in a card room where he cheated the customers. He denied ever striking Charlene, but he admitted pulling her hair once when she was using a word that he felt was inappropriate. He explained that although he sometimes wanted to hit her, he generally treated her with consideration and care. He testified that Charlene became pregnant and they had agreed she should have an abortion. And later in 1978, they were married in Reno and he had attained false identification papers and began using the name Stephen Feel, the name of one of Charlene's relatives. So you can see that they were kind of already off to a really rocky start. They met, they were 10 years apart. Which in my um <laughs> in my experience is usually uh, not good.
1: <laughs> I feel like when you are, it's that's the thing. Is like people talk about age is just a number, and I get that to an extent when you're like older, but when you're talking about mm-hmm. somebody, I I feel like around that age, it's still like kind of
0: you're still a very childlike. Much. Yeah, yeah. I have I have dated people who are well over ten years older than me. <laughs> What happened yeah. in my early twenties and it didn't go yeah, so great.
1: And, <laughs> I was gonna say, do you look back on that with like a positive look, because I don't. You know what I mean? I looked
0: back on it and I was treated like an absolute child and it was a bit of a fetishization. So no, it was not pleasant. Now, if that (laughs) were to happen now, if I were to date somebody who's older than me now, I feel like it would be a completely different experience Mm -hmm. um, because I am much, much older. And somebody who's 10 years older than me is like getting into their middle age. So it wouldn't be like, I don't feel like it would be the same as if I was 20 and somebody was in their late 30s dating me, you know? (laughs) Right,
1: right. Yeah, no, I totally agree.
0: It's just very, it's a very different thing. I feel like a lot of women who are in their early 20s still have a lot of childlike aspects to their um, appearance. Yeah. Uh, And I feel like that's the appeal and that's gross.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yep.
0: That is like pedophilia light.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Pedophilia light, oh God.
0: Yeah, yuck. Anyway, so let's get back to Gerald and Charlene's award-winning relationship. Um, <laughs> Gerald was constantly cheating on Charlene, and Charlene also cheated on Gerald, but not to the proportions in which he did. He often blamed Charlene for his sexual inadequacies, i.e. a severe lack of boners. Um, but to, Is that the medical honest, term? That is the serious medical term from all the journals. (laughs) Serious lack of boners. (laughs) But to be honest, Gerald was a drug user and also an alcoholic. So if you have ever dated somebody uh, who likes to drink a lot, you know what whiskey dick is. And I'm sorry, Mm. that's a lack of a boner. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, it is what it is. They were both kind of like fucking around on each other. Now that they were going to be officially married, Gerald started grooming Charlene to be his accomplice. And he started talking about this sort of slave fantasy with her and how he wanted to do this together. (laughs) Which, you know, there's nothing wrong with like consensual kind of like dominatrix style slave master relationships. We are not into kink shaming. Do you? The problem is that he wanted to kidnap girls against their will to be slaves, i.e. literal slavery. (laughs) Oh, So that's that's where the problem arises. That's a bit of a problem. (laughs) Yeah, the kidnapping part is the no-go. Yes. So Charlene and Gerald went out driving to kind of like shop for girls, and this trip would cause a downward spiral of escalation. Who would have thought? Oh, no. (laughs) I'm going to read through each case. Um, some I had a, more information than the others, so some of them will be a little bit more intense, and in the information in others will be a little bit later. So the first victims of Gerald and Charlene were Rhonda Scheffler and Kippy Vaught, and this was in 1978. This is their first drive, and on this drive, they approached the 17-year-old Rhonda and the 16-year-old Kippy. Charlene approached them under the guise of wanting to smoke marijuana in their van, which, you know, vans, man... They always cause problems. Um,
1: I feel like in this was this was not a weird thing time. to happen in 1978. Although no, definitely should not have been happen- Like I feel like this is the setup to a lot of like kidnappings and disappearances and murders that happened around that time. Oh also. Yeah.
0: if it's not candy and puppies, it's weed, man. Yeah. <laughs> so they were like, "Hey, you want to come smoke some weed in the back of our van?" Uh, This is California, so that was my best California accent. Um, So the girls agreed, (laughs) and they entered the van, and then they were shocked to see a man in it who had a gun in his hand. Okay. So he tied them up and had Charlene drive them far out to the middle of nowhere. Uh, Once they arrived in a field, he took the two girls out of the van and he took them back to a tree line. Uh, Charlene stayed with the car. He didn't return with them for several hours. Um, and when he returned, of course, you could tell that they had been assaulted and he had tortured them. He then had Charlene drive them to another area in Nevada where he killed them and then kind of like loosely buried them in the dirt. His methodology of killing kind of ranged from uh, shooting, but for the most part, it was strangulation for a lot of these. I didn't want to specify each and every one because I'm trying to move away from like glorifying that aspect of the story so just Mm -hmm. know that he switched between strangulation and shooting them and he did a lot of torture with knives okay so the girls were actually found the next day by farm workers because they were again barely buried they were just like loosely dirt thrown onto them gerald took up a steady mistress after this um who became pregnant and at the same time charlene also became pregnant so this is happening. They had just killed their first, you know, two girls. Um, so Gerald was, like, overwhelmed. He decided to move into an apartment by himself to kind of figure things out. And eventually, he decided that he did want to stay with Charlene. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't able to find any information about his other child with his mistress, but Charlene eventually was forced to have an abortion, which I mentioned further, uh, previously. Um mm. This was the pregnancy that she aborted. Okay. In September of 1978, Krista, which was his daughter, with the assistance of her mother, had uh, filed charges against her father for molestation. So he and Charlene decided to flee to Texas to avoid, you know, facing these charges he took up truck driving to kind of make ends meet in between. So he's like the trifecta of all the things. Like he has a van, he's a truck driver. (laughs) Wow. All of
1: these weird red flags. Just really checking all the boxes on that like serial killer list. So now we're at
0: 1979. We're in Texas. And um, this is when he decides he he's got that itch again. He wants to keep that fantasy life going in Texas. So he again convinced Charlene to go out with him to get some girls. This time they would select 14-year-old Brenda Judd and 13-year-old Sandra Collie. So a little bit younger. Their shtick this time was to try to get someone to help them distribute flyers for pay. So Charlene is going around saying, oh my gosh, can you help me pass out these flyers? I will pay you for your help. Um, So Charlene took them to, again, the back of their van to go get the leaflets. And when they approached the van, there was Gerald with a gun in his hand. And, of course, he kidnapped them. He repeated the same pattern of assault, then driving them somewhere and killing them. The girls were reported missing, but because it's 1979, everything was treated as a runaway case because nobody gave a shit about anybody.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so true. I come on. Like the 70s and the 80s. Those years... They're the worst. As much as I love them, they are exactly the worst because policing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it hasn't really gotten better, but like...
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I I forget what I was listening to, but it was, I think it was a podcast or news. It might have been a news article. I don't remember. Anyway, they mentioned like... A lot of police departments were very apprehensive to admit if they had a serial killer or if they had somebody who was doing a string of homicide because then that would be like a black mark upon their police department for not knowing or apprehending the person. Yeah. So even if they were very aware of what was going on, there was a lot of apprehension to even acknowledge these things were happening because, you know, policing back then was very much like, you know, I'm going to put very, very loose quotes on this. An honorable thing to do.
1: <laughs> oh my god. I'm just going to put this out there because I've been listening. I realize the series is a little old now. Like a couple months old. But Behind the Bastards just did a great, like, seven-part series called Behind the Police that goes over mm-hmm. the entire history of Policing from the start of it, back when it was uh, meant as a way to control slaves, control and find Mm -hmm. slaves, um, to now. So it's really, if you really want like a full history of policing and some of the practices, definitely check it out.
0: Yep. I also listen to that, and it, I I also recommend it. It's very very good. But I just enjoy yeah, anything yeah. that Behind the Bastards does. So, <laughs> yeah. I also listen to their Worst Year Ever, which is also
1: it's great but depressing. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> it is, but you know they preface it by saying this is the worst year ever, and boy, it's so colly, true. were they right.
1: <laughs> oh my god, yes.
0: So he's just killed two more girls. He's at four, four girls. Now he has a little, a small period of waiting, by small period I mean a couple of months, and then he is deciding, you know what, F Texas, let's go back to California. So they go back to California around 1980, and Gerald was just itching and hearting again to get some more girls, so he went on the hunt yet again. He took Charlene to Tower Records, which I read that and I was like, oh man, remember record stores? Aww. (laughs) So he went there to go hunt for girls, but it was a little bit crowded, so they eventually found their way to a mall, and they came across 17-year-old Stacy Ann Redican and 17-year-old Karen Chipman Twigs. The two were lured into the Galagos' van, again, by way of drugs. I didn't realize that so many people were so willing to take drugs from strangers. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I like yeah. drugs from people I know. <laughs> yeah. So... During this time, Charlene again discovered that she was pregnant. So they had just killed, you know, the next two girls. They're at six people now. She figures out she's pregnant, and she's very afraid to tell Gerald. So when she does, she's actually extremely surprised that Gerald is excited that she is pregnant. And he's like, yeah, let's have this fucking baby. So, still, 1980. The Gallegoses decide they're going to go on a vacation in Oregon. Oh, they're using aliases though when they travel, so they're under the uh, Mister and Mrs. Fails. They decide to acquire another girl. Now they come across a twenty-year, twenty-one-year-old woman named Linda Teresa Teresa Aguilar. Linda is pregnant, and she is working at this—I um, believe it was a diner or a coffee shop. I forget. Okay, but they. Saw her walking home, and they decided to pull over and offer her a ride. Uh, Gerald immediately starts assaulting her in the back of the van as Charlene drives.
1: Oh, my God. Linda
0: was found months later. Originally, it was thought that she had ran away because she was pregnant and her boyfriend was kind of, like, not the best. And all of the suspicion was cast upon him when her body was found even though there were witnesses who said they saw her get into a van with strangers.
1: That doesn't matter.
0: Runaways. Yeah, exactly. Runaways, murdered by her boyfriend. Duh. Ugh. So 1980 would be the year where they were, like, hitting it hard. So they had already killed Linda, they killed Stacy and Karen, and now they're on the hunt for yet another girl.
1: I was going to say, it does sound like this is accelerating
0: quite a bit. Oh, yes, it is accelerating a lot. So it's 1980, and Virginia Moschel was a bartender in the Sale Inn in Sacramento. Gerald and Charlene wandered in and proceeded to get belligerently drunk. And Gerald decides to take Virginia to be his lawfully wedded slave. And so they waited until closing and approached her in the parking lot. This time, they kidnapped her and took the... Uh, her to their house. So this is a little bit of a different kind of change in what's happening. When they were finished assaulting her and torturing her, Charlene then drove them out and Gerald killed her. Virginia immediately was reported missing. And in her case, it was taken a little bit more seriously because she was a mother of two and she didn't come home from work. So it was not treated as a runaway. Gerald and Charlene were interviewed as they frequented that bar a little bit um, the two gave the exact same story with the exception that Charlene mentioned that they had gone fishing earlier that day. Now, you're like, who fucking cares? Uh here's the thing. When Virginia was found, she had been tied with fishing line around her wrists. And nobody mm-hmm. thought to think, oh, hmm, somebody mentioned that they had gone fishing and there's fishing line around her wrists. Her No one even thought that was strange. <laughs> That's not weird. Sure. Not weird at all.
1: So, oh, my God.
0: Now that they are escalating, they are becoming increasingly more reckless. They're amplifying kind of things a lot. They're bringing people into their home. It's just, it's a lot. Now they're kind of looking for another person. And it's November of 1980 now. They decided to go hunt for their next victim outside of a local mall. They parked the van, and Gerald decided to approach Elizabeth and a gentleman who was with her named Craig. Now, this was completely out of their normal kind of uh, line of reasoning here. Their previous patterns were just all women or women with another woman. This was a girl and a man. So this is very outside of their realm of huh. normalcy. yeah. So there was a bit of a tussle as they tried to get Mary Elizabeth Sowers into the van, and as they're doing so, Craig Miller is fighting them. Right now, as there's tussling, uh, they get the two into the car, but not before Craig's like bro. I call him a bro because that's how he was described in a lot of the um, <laughs> a lot of the information. Craig's bro, okay. frat bro approach and ask what the fuck was going on. Charlene immediately starts yelling in this dude's face and straight up fucking slaps the guy in the face, okay? And then takes off in the van. The dude, being a smart bro, writes down the license plate and immediately calls the cops. Okay. Now Charlene and Gerald proceed with their plan, unfortunately, and they kill Craig and Mary, and they do so in their home. So this, again, is kind of like a crazy escalation. Now yeah. they go on and proceed to dump the bodies after murdering them. Now it's not too long after this happens, because this is like very quick chain of events. The police show up at their house and they search the place. They find bullet casings and suspicious tools in the home. And they begin to interrogate the couple they're taken in for interrogation and charlene spilled all the beans
1: oh my gosh
0: so basically what they did was they kind of turned her against him mm-hmm. and gerald's uh lawyers tried to kind of enact that sort of like uh confidentiality within marriage where you can't mm-hmm. like testify against your significant other but because right. Charlene was an accomplice, that kind of was like null and void. Okay. So they proceeded to kind of use her against him as a witness, and she got a better kind of deal out of it. So
1: I feel like that's something really common when you're talking about like criminal duos is yeah. turning one person against the other.
0: Hmm. Now this is the interesting part of the case, which I thought was. Really strange. While awaiting trial in California, due to a shortage in funds, which apparently happened, the public actually actively raised $28,000 to help prosecute Gerald Gallagher.
1: Wow. Yeah. I didn't even know you could do that. I didn't know that
0: either. On January 17th, 1981, Charlene, while she was in prison, gave birth to Gerald Armand Gallagher Jr. The custody of the child was given to Charlene's parents. On June 21, 1983, after six months of hearings, Gerald Armand Gallego Sr. was sentenced to death for the murder of Craig and Mary. In November of 1983, due to a plea bargain struck with prosecutors to testify against Gerald, Charlene was sentenced to 16 years and eight months in prison, with the understanding that no other charges in any other state's could or would be pressed against her as long as she gave full cooperation. So if you remember, they killed somebody in Texas, Oregon, and California. So they have, you know, extradition kind of things where they could be prosecuted in those states for those different crimes. Right. On June 25th, 1984, after being extradited to Nevada, Gerald was again sentenced to death for the murders of Twigs and Redican. Now we're going to fast forward all the way to 1997. August of 1997, at the age of 40, Charlene Adele Williams Gallagher was released on parole from the Department of, Prison's, Department of Prison's Women's Center in Carson City, Nevada. That is a mouthful. Her lawyer said that she will pursue positive goals in an undisclosed location. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, there hasn't been much about her since, but she was released from prison and I assume was living under a different identity. Mm-hmm. Gerald Gallagher fought against his death penalty sentence. Um, his death sentence was in Nevada, was overturned in 1999, and he won the right to a new sentencing hearing, but the new jury also sentenced him to death again. So there's a lot of legal stuff that went on with this case where he was trying to get things thrown out because of his previous lawyer and the inability to... um Kind of actively represent him. There was also a lot of um, they said discriminatory practices in the jury selection, and um, okay. I forget what they said. Something about his wife being coaxed into a confession um, okay. to testify against him. Um, like they were basically like scaring her. Mm-hmm. So that is why he decided that he was going to try and get you know the case overturned. But again, you know. The jury just sentenced him to the exact same thing. (laughs) Yeah. The unfortunate part was he died while in custody in 2002, awaiting execution. He died from cancer. I wasn't able to find anything else about his children, however, but there are reports that Charlene is still alive and well today. Um, Again, I think she's under an assumed identity. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is the case of Gerald and Charlene Gallagher. That was a wild ride.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I am going to talk about a criminal duo who earned the moniker, the Speed Freak Killers. And this is about Lauren Herzog and Wesley Shermantine Jr. Now, the two of them grew up together in Linden, California. Shermantine's family is described as pretty successful, and his father would often take the boys on hunting and fishing trips. And their childhood is described as like a like pretty outdoorsy with Herzog and shermantine exploring the outdoors and mineshafts that are in the San Joaquin County uh, area.
0: I like how our stories both take place in California. What does that tell you about California?
1: Ooh, <laughs> I didn't even think it didn't even occur to me. <laughs> um, that was not intentional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the two... Of them remain friends all the way through high school and into adulthood, where they got an apartment together and they did everything together, including an increasingly horrible drug habit. Because Herzog and Shermantine got into uh, methamphetamine, when, as happens a lot of the time with meth, their behavior took a very quick spiral downward. Now, at this time, they were also regulars at a bar called the Linden Inn, which was a business that was owned by the father of a 25 year old woman named Cindy Vanderheiden. In 1998, Vanderheiden turned up missing after leaving the bar with Herzog and Shermantine on November 14th. Now, of course, police immediately began investigating the disappearance, focusing on Shermantine and Herzog and the investigation continued into early uh, 1999 when Shermantine's car was repossessed, and the San Joaquin Sheriff's Department had the opportunity to search it for any evidence connected to Vanderheiden's disappearance. What they found was some blood evidence that they had suspected came from Vanderheiden, but and after a dna test it would come back as belonging to vanderheiden but in the meantime while they waited for these dna results officials decided to focus interrogation efforts on herzog who they believed was an accomplice and this is what i'm talking about by like it's so common that they bring in one of the pair to try to flip them mm-hmm. on the other The interrogation of Herzog lasted a total of 17 hours and the majority of it was recorded and there's large portions available online. I'm going to put a link to a chunk of it in the episode notes, but there's so much that I couldn't, I'm not even going to like play a clip or anything. It's just, there's a lot (laughs) of stuff in that. Now it didn't take long before Herzog turned on Shermantine for much more than just Vanderhine's disappearance. Instead, telling authorities that Shermantine was responsible for at least 24 murders. He described a man who would kill without discretion, regardless of whether the victims were strangers or friends. He also put all of the blame on Shermanine, saying he was responsible for either wielding the knife or pulling the trigger in every incident that the two of them were accused of. So I'm just going to go over this is the easiest way that i could figure out to do it i'm gonna go over Mm -hmm. all of the claims that herzog made during this uh interrogation i do want to point out again that this is all stuff that herzog is describing um so take that with a grain of salt um Mm -hmm. because he probably has some self-preservation in mind here right So first, Herzog described a time that the two of them were driving in a truck on Roberts Island when they passed a parked 1982 Pontiac on the road. The pair decided to turn around, go back to where the car was at, pull shotguns out of the truck and approach the vehicle where Shermantine shot and killed 35-year-old Howard Michael King, who had been driving the vehicle. Shermantine then walked around to the passenger side, pulled out 31 year old Paul Raymond Kavanaugh from the car, shot and killed him at point point blank range, and proceeded to slice his pockets open with a knife so that he could steal whatever was in his pockets. That seems unnecessary. (laughs) It's a little excessive. Herzog then went on to describe an incident that happened two months prior where he and Schermantine passed 41-year-old Henry Howell, who had been parked on the side of Highway 88 after driving drunk. So he had like pulled over to, he was sleeping in his car. Again, Herzog claimed that Shermantine had shot and killed Howell with a shotgun Herzog then claimed that he and Shermantine had picked up 24-year-old Robin Armtrout intending on going out drinking. Instead, the three of them ended up in a field not far from uh, Herzog and Shermantine's homes where Shermantine beat, raped, and stabbed Armtrout more than a dozen times before leaving her naked body on the banks of Potter Creek to die.
0: I don't know why I'm shaking my head. You can't see that. <laughs>
1: I'm just like, no. mm. <laughs> you need to start wearing bells so that I can I can hear I when you're just it's so
0: much like shaking your head. you're in front of me,
1: you can see the disappointment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Herzog then described a similar series of events in relation to a woman named Chevelle Wheeler. Herzog hadn't been present for this assault, but claimed that Shermantine had bragged about it. Further investigation into this claim showed Shermantine had asked Wheeler to go on a mountain excursion, even calling her house on the day of her disappearance to ensure that she was still planning to come out with him. Police investigated the Shermantine family cabin and found blood that matched Wheeler's blood type, and it was only with recent advancements in DNA technology that authorities were able to prove that the blood indeed belonged to Chevelle Wheeler. In regards to the Vander disappearance, Herzog claimed that he and Shermantine had met van der at a cemetery near her home, uh, and they all got into a car and began to drive to Linden when Shermantine pulled a knife and demanded that she perform oral sex. They then... Uh, Stopped the car where Shermantine raped Vander Heiden before slicing her throat. Herzog claimed that Shermantine murdered a hunter while the two were on vacation in northern Utah in 1994. Authorities did look into this claim as well, and they were able to confirm that there was an unsolved murder of a hunter at that time in Utah. Okay. Now, as I said in the beginning, if you notice through all of these admissions, Herzog didn't implicate himself in any of these situations other than to say that he was there for some of them. Mm -hmm. He would claim that he never stopped Shermantine's actions because he was scared, but it's fair to say that some of this was more than likely not truthful. I think there's a pretty clear pattern in this whole list, but... Mm Following this interrogation of Herzog, uh, Shermanine was also brought in for interrogation in 1999. But he had far less to say about all of these murders. He claimed that while indeed he and Herzog had been at the bar the night of Vanderheiden's disappearance, they had barely noticed her there, and that she had left an hour before he and Herzog left. But and this I found really interesting. The police showed him the interview tape from Herzog's interrogation. I don't know that they showed him the whole thing, but they definitely showed him portions of it, and he decided instead to point the vig- the finger in Herzog's direction. Soon after these interrogations in 1999, Shermanine was charged with first degree murder for the slayings of Chevy Wheeler, Cindy Vanderhyden paul cavanaugh and howard king although like i said earlier authorities believe that he may be responsible for upwards of 22 murders maybe more um there were also discussions of when they started killing and the evidence that they have says somewhere between like 1819 but they are thinking it may have started earlier even than that Herzog was charged with the murders of Cindy Van Der Howard King, Paul Kavanaugh, Robin Armtrout, and an accessory to the murder of Henry Howell. In 2001, Shermantine was found guilty for the four murders and sentenced to death, and he is currently on death row at San Quentin State Prison. Uh, Herzog was also found guilty at his trial in 2001 for the murders and the accessory to murder charge for which he received 78 years imprisonment. Now, as a lot of cases we cover, this is not the end of the story. Herzog decided to appeal uh, the decision, and in August 2004, his conviction was overturned on the basis that his confessions had been coerced during long interrogation sessions. The courts also said that police ignored his rights to remain silent, deprived him of food and sleep, and delayed his arraignment for four days. Hmm. The appeals court ordered a new trial, but instead, his lawyers were able to work a plea deal with prosecutors in which Herzog agreed to plead guilty to manslaughter in Van der Heiden's case and an accessory to... The murders of King, Howell, and Kavanaugh, along with a charge of providing meth to Vanderheiden in exchange for 14 years' imprisonment with time served. And I'm assuming this is because the confession was no longer valid. They didn't actually have a ton of evidence against him. I can only assume that. I'm also, because I'll tell you right now, um, Shermantine did not appeal or if he did appeal his conviction they were unsuccessful mm-hmm. and i'm interested as to why that is because if herzog was able to go and get all of his uh essentially reversed because of that confession being thrown out because of coercion mm-hmm. i don't know why uh wouldn't have been able to do something similar because i'm sure a lot of his evidence was based on these confessions from herzog as well yeah who knows decisions attorneys make. (laughs) (laughs) So Herzog was released on parole September eighteenth, 2010, where he was sent to a home inside High Desert State Prison grounds, um, which was basically a trailer on the grounds. This is something that I personally have never heard of. I don't know how common this is. If you have uh, have. people that you consider dangerous to just have a live on the grounds what was the case that there was
0: an i survived story Mm -hmm. that we i don't know if we covered it but we definitely talked about it it was in the early days of our podcast i believe my favorite murder also did okay where he attempted to kill that girl and threw her like slit her throat and threw her off the side of a overpass and she climbed back up he yes. lived in a trailer on the grounds of a prison oh. in several states. Yeah. And Mary, that,
1: that's the
0: first are you time I You're not talking about
1: Mary Vincent, are you? Yes, I am. <laughs> okay. Because that is one of my favorite survivor stories. Um, but yes. so he lived on the, the prison mm-hmm. grounds, too. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. And this was, what, late 70s, early 80s?
1: Yeah, and Mm -hmm. this, uh, when he would have been, he got released on parole in 2010, so Mm -hmm. they're still doing that, apparently. Yep. Yep. (laughs) So he was on parole at this time. Conditions of his parole included wearing a GPS bracelet where he wasn't allowed to leave more than um, 100, he wasn't allowed to go more than 150 feet from his trailer, all visitors had to check in and out at the guard gatehouse. Uh, he was required to be at the trailer at the hours between 8 30 p.m. and 5 30 a.m. and 1 30 to 3 30 p.m. But because of these uh, restrictions, he was also not required to work. Hmm. It seemed like this early release we'll say, got Shermantine a little jealous because after Herzog's release, Shermantine offered to reveal the locations of the bodies in exchange for $33,000, which was an offer that was actually taken by bounty hunter Leonard Padilla. So Padilla, after accepting this offer then went to Herzog's trailer to, like, try and warn him to get a lawyer because Shermantine at this time was preparing to turn some maps over to him to point him to where all the bodies were at. Later that same day, on January 2012, Lauren Herzog was found dead after hanging himself in his trailer. He left behind a simple note that just said, tell my family I love them. And then later, in February 2012, Shermantine did actually provide these maps to the bounty hunter, and investigators have been able to find the remains of Cindy Vanderheiden and Chevelle Wheeler, along with close to a thousand human bone fragments in an abandoned well. But Shermantine has yet to see any of the money that he requested. He has claimed to local news agencies that he could point to where more of the remains are in what he is referring to as Herzog's party area. Okay, But also said that he's not going to reveal any more of this information until he receives the original $33,000, which as far as I'm aware up to this point, he hasn't received. And I know that there was some deals that he was trying to work out with investigators to they were kind of offering to drop the death penalty if he were to reveal the locations of these bodies and the victim's families did agree to something like that but they were really adamant against paying money for revealing these locations Mm -hmm. so that's kind of where the case lies today i'm interested to see if they'll be able to compel him to to reveal more information about it but he still insists that he's innocent it was all herzogs uh idea i don't know i'm not so sure it's really interesting that they
0: brought in a bounty hunter yeah and not just like let
1: the police deal with it you know <laughs> yeah well and i'm wondering if it's if he made like a public offer that the bounty hunter just decided to take up mm-hmm. or if that was somebody that was Hired by investigators, uh, to do this work or what? I have no idea how this bounty hunter got pulled into this story. It does seem a little weird. Doesn't yeah. It? Yeah. It's a little strange. Yeah. But if you're thinking of like, I don't know, committing crimes with your best friend or your wife or some stranger on the street, how about you don't? First of <laughs> all. <laughs> and second of all, check out this podcast. All right, guys, that has been our episode for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what What do we even have going on right now? I don't even know what's happening. Well, I don't think there's anything going um, on. I think we're good. <laughs> no, there's not. There's not really. We had a lot of stuff get canceled for this year, so there's really yeah. not too much going on. But mm-hmm. if you missed uh, the Elgin Fringe, which is going to be over, I think, by the time that we are releasing this episode, we did actually do a little interview with them mm-hmm. that you should still be able to see. Oh, yes. um, it's up on their Facebook page or their YouTube channel, Elgin Fringe Festival, I think. Yes. You can also access it through Side
0: Street Studio Arts as well. Hmm. So that was fun. Yeah.
1: And mm-hmm. what else do we got? You know. Let's see. We're getting close to 100 episodes, you guys.
0: We're so, oh my we're God. so
1: close. We are going to hit... I think a hundred episodes before twenty twenty is over yep. if we survive the year, oh God, if everything
0: doesn't go to complete and
1: utter shit, <laughs> yeah, for real, so hopefully before that happens, if you want, you can also check out our merch page uh if you need a sweatshirt going into the fall, we got those, yeah, warm yourself up and other stuff, <laughs> yeah. Warm yourself up with crime. Um, <laughs> ew. Ew. <laughs> uh, you can find that at badtastecrimecast.com slash merch. While you're there, you can also find our donate page at badtastecrimecast.com slash donate. It'll take you right over to the Patreon where we got tons of bonus content. Oh, yeah. Just literally lots, lots of it. All sorts of things. Uh, what else? I think that's kinda it. Yeah. Did I miss anything?
0: <laughs> no, I think I think that's it.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, our sounded editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason do the enigma. <laughs> this had been the Bad Taste Crimecast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.
1: was as if a wave of
0: evil washed over this town. We are all evil. We're in, in some form or another.
1: Okay, we made it through. Oh we God, made through Barely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tired.